Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. It was a real pleasure having George Savides, the chairman of SBS, on the show today. I previously worked with George and his senior leadership team when he was the CEO of uh, Medibank Private. And one of the things we did was to go on a cattle drove in outback Queensland. And he explains why we did that and what was the outcome of that. He's a real fan of business author Jim Collins' concept of level five leadership and explains why he thinks it's a really important concept in today's work environment. He talks about his red sock washing metaphor to talk through what one toxic team member can do to the whole team. Self-care is really important to George and uh, he only retired as a hockey player with a senior University of Melbourne team in 2016. One of his uh, proudest achievements was the transition of Medibank from a government organisation to a high-performing private enterprise organisation and how he focused on storytelling and why to really help with that transition. He also served for a long time as a board director of World Vision and explained how his experience there helped kept his business and personal issues in real perspective. Great guy, George. Enjoy. I'm delighted today to welcome to the show George Savides. George is the son of Greek Cypriot parents who arrived in Australia in 1950. He was the first person in his family to go to university. George has 30 years' experience in the Australian and New Zealand healthcare sector, including three CEO roles at Smith & Nephew, Sigma Pharmaceuticals, and Medibank Private. He joined Medibank at a time when it was making a $175 million loss. But three years later, it had turned around to a record profit of $130 million. He led Medibank as CEO for 14 years, retiring in 2016. He is currently the chairman of public broadcaster SBS and the biotech company Next Science and a board member of IAG and Ryman Healthcare. He retired as chairman of World Vision Australia in 2018, having served on the board for over 18 years. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2020 Australia Day Honours for significant service to the community, to charitable groups, and to business. He is also passionate about hockey and played with the Melbourne University veterans up until 2016. Welcome, George. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Graeme. Thank you. George, what does caring in the workplace mean to you? Well, it's actually a, a very big and important topic because if you in the workplace want to have a high-performing organisation, then that only happens if you've got a high-performing leadership group and teams that work for them that are feeling connected, enthusiastic about their work and get on pretty well with each other as well. That friction piece is managed well. So care touches all of that because, in my experience, the opposite of care, a deficiency in care, force, power, threats. Uh, You might get a day's worth of strong output, but it's not a sustainable long-term proposition. And so maybe we take it for granted, but I think caring culture, I think, is directly linked to high-performing teams that produce long-term results. Yeah, fantastic. And we talk about, you know, having a culture which, which prizes both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. And you've led organisations that are measured, you know, every quarter or every year. How, there must be tension between those two things. How do you keep on top of that balance and get the yeah. optimum output? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, and leaders who are sort of under the pump to deliver results, but also want to do the right thing by leading their organisations in terms of people leadership, are often finding themselves under pressure and to maybe subordinate one objective to the other but it's it is a both and not one or the other and yes boards do expect high performance shareholders expect high performance 
but you don't get that by not being a caring culture in an organisation that's seeking to have great teamwork and great outcomes. I know that you really value the concept of a level three leader, which is described in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Can you just explain what a level five leader is? Yeah, so Collins talks about the level five leader being the more of a coach than a captain. Captains tend to score goals are on the field calling shots. Coaches are on the sidelines, so they should be not allowed to run out in the middle of the game. <laughs> and that, so they've done their prep work in the locker room on the training field prior to the game, talked one-on-one with players who may be forgetting that you know, passing the ball is a good idea at the right time rather than keeping it or losing their head when they're niggled by an opponent instead of staying focused on the game and the strategy. So the Level 5 leader in Collins's book has came out of the observation of researching many, many companies where he was looking for why companies perform at a high level over a long period of time rather than short blips. And he found leaders that fitted a profile that wasn't what he expected. He thought he would find great captains, but what he found was amazing coaches, mm. people who call the metaphor the, the window in the mirror. When things were going well, they would look through the window of their office onto the factory floor or the operation and say, it's my great team, wonderful people, so committed to the cause. When things were going badly, that leader would look in the mirror. So what am I doing wrong? What am I missing? What does my team need of me that I'm not giving them? So this level five leader ended up being a profile of a sort of a resilient, stoic, not giving up, always through the team, serving and sacrificing on behalf of the team and the organisation. In other words, leading by example in terms of the mission that they committed themselves to rather than looking for some kind of personal ambition. So that's the level five leader. And I always admire that, pro- that stereotypal prototype. And I, I found that it encouraged me to try to be a leader in a certain kind of way and to also help leaders who work for me to sort of get the most out of their teams by getting themselves out of the picture and putting yeah. the team in the picture. Yeah, fantastic. And had that work on a you know, week-to-week basis, George, what sort of questions did you ask yourself to try and stay on track for that style of leadership? Yeah, so the week-to-week stuff would be, you know, there may be some friction between a couple of our team members on particular issues or maybe their personalities just didn't gel. And that was always the elephant in the room and just, you know, you might try to get the meeting done, but unless you resolve that, you know you've got a handbrake on the, on the vehicle. So we spent a lot of time stopping to sort people out because we knew that we could only really run as fast as the slowest player in the team in a sense of those, that friction issue. And so we, we would double back and resolve the issue, try to listen to each other, understand the viewpoints. And, you know, that tended to also build that kind of, we talk about values in an organisation that is actually putting those values into practice. And if we did that at the top of the organisation, we're more likely to lead by example through the organisation. So, you know, treating others with respect collaborating rather than trying to kick the goal yourself, that kind. So that was a lot of the week-to-week. Another part of it was this accountability to each other, healthy, transparent accountability, which I had to live with as well as leader, um, which would be, George, you know, we've got a problem here. You know, we're saying one thing with our values, but one of our senior executives who's driving a very large technical project is not living those values and we've got people in tears at the startup meetings every morning and, you know, they're being challenged pretty aggressively by that leader and, and you need to deal with it and we need to deal with it as a leadership group. And I remember those days and I think about, um, you know, but what about the objectives? This person's really delivering. They're brilliant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, of course they are, but, you know, it's how you get there, not just what, what happens at the outcome. So. I remember having to deal with that and taking the risk that we would drop the project KPIs, but we had to win the team culture. And how did that and discussion go? You had someone that, as you say, was delivering the goals, meeting objectives, but was causing some friction and some damage behind them. How did you, how did you go about handling that? So obviously give people some chance, give them feedback, ask them to modify, significantly modify their approach to team briefings and task achievement. I think this particular individual was actually probably 
better suited for the US military or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, brilliant person, really res- very respectful of their, their capabilities, but you know, on people leadership, it was not a strength. So we ended up, after trying a few times, parting ways in a very generous way and caring way, but parting ways, and that immediately sent a signal to the whole organisation because it, it said that actually they do believe in the values that they're promoting as a company and culture, so the leadership group. Had we not done that, even if there may be one person in 12 in a team that may be a misstep, not delivering the right value and behaviours, and we think, oh, the 11 will win. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the wrong metaphor. It's not the numeric 11 against one. It's if you condone the one, it spoils and stains the entire organisation because it sends a message to everyone who's impacted by that individual that those values aren't values that are seriously upheld by the CEO and the leadership group. And the, my metaphor for this, Graham, sort of followed me around a bit was that some time ago, Vivian asked me to do some help around the house. You know, it still happens. It's good. <laughs> and I was fumbling away in the laundry, doing a, a load of white clothing into the wash, and that was the first load of the day. And I inadvertently let a red sock get, get caught up <laughs> in all of the white clothing. And so when I proudly said, oh, it's all finished now, I'll take them out, and, you know, I'm so good. I opened the door and everything was pink. <laughs> and and that's, that's the metaphor of values and culture in, in, in organisations, that it may only be one person, one part, one department, one section, and we may be tempted in protecting it because they are achieving great things or they've been here forever or they're the son and daughter of the founder or whatever it is. And that condoning stains the entire wash. So beware of the red socks and you've got to be a pure play when it comes to values and behaviours. That's a great metaphor. When you uh, started with Medibank Private on the path to privatisation, I assume it was largely a public sector organisation that you were taking on. How do you begin that transition of culture to, you know, make it a much more accountable, much more customer service focused organisation? Yes, actually, over the 14 years, Graham, it was, it was actually three periods of change, not two. Mm-hmm. So the, the initial period was that inherited, you know, government public service sort of organisation that came out of the Department of Health sort of leadership line. So it became a, a government business enterprise based out of Canberra and Melbourne late last century. And, and in that, uh, we had, I, I joined in 2001. So we, we inherited an organisation that was a, a bit like a public service in a sense. It's, it's, it's heritage, it's origins, that's where its people came from. It's a very loyal, very committed people. But a, but a certain rhythm and a certain practice sort of momentum. And so the first phase of change was not the privatisation, that was still over the horizon. The company was crippled, it was losing money, it was bleeding. It was to find our why. So what do we stand for? Why, what, why do we exist? And we started not with consultants because we couldn't afford them. No. Uh, we went down and spoke to all of our staff and asked them, you know, what are you hearing from our customers? What, what do you want? What do you think we should be about? And we came back with a really strong message that it wasn't about paying bills, reimbursing receipts from healthcare providers. They wanted the organisation to actually be better informed about the health that was being paid for. Mm-hmm. And to be much more involved in the healthcare part of the sector that we are a payer to, to be more relevant in healthcare and to be more discerning around the healthcare we pay for on behalf of the 4 million lives that are insured by the health fund. So the, the slogan was we had to move from payer to player in the health sector. We had to move from the grandstand watching the game of healthcare play out onto the playing field and be a participant with the providers to ensure that members who use the health system take the right pathways, go to the high quality providers and get the best care. So that became a change program. It also informed our strategic intent and we acquired three businesses with very deep healthcare pedigree and they were incorporated in the business. So we went from a company that had 5% of its workforce of 3,500 people as health professionals 
to a company that I think got up to about a third of its workforce wow. who health professionals. Mm. Uh, that informed our contracting, our product designs, our procurement strategies, our continuum of care from primary care into acute care and rehab and prevention, you know, understanding what care needs were coming and emerging for health members rather than just waiting for a reactive uh, reimbursement claim. So that was very energising to find our purpose, which we put in the byline of the, the brand, you know, for better health. The, the next phase of change, and, and that really energised the organisation, we became more like you'd expect a corporation of that size to look like. And then we moved into the, the privatisation cycle the last you know, three or four years where we were asked to get ready and started all the prep. And this is where the beginning of this interview sort of comes into play. Mm-hmm. We, we just don't want the caring culture, George, and the healthcare concerns for members where we need some results. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we need to be able to value the enterprise at its true potential rather than from some of its legacy value and underperformance. So we were already at average at the time of that journey. But it's interesting, Graham, that the, the purpose of the organisation became the way in which it found its high performance. Mm. We ended up looking at the claims we paid for with a very deep, knowledgeable team around healthcare, and they found errors or overpayments or some fraud in some dental practices and they found lots of things they found Mm. patterns in the claiming that shouldn't have been there they found infection rates in smaller hospitals that were twice the amount percentage of patient for a particular surgery than some of the mainstream hospitals uh, the larger more competent corporate hospitals and so you know all of that resulted in saving unnecessary costing benefit claims and directing more of those costs into more beneficial areas. And that had a net-net result. The, the saved waste was quite significant and margins doubled in a three-year period and it went straight into the IPO and that made the IPO very successful and those margins have been sustained since then. So, But if you go back, it wasn't forcing for numbers. Mm. It wasn't this sort of cruel autocratic leadership approach. It was level five again. It was about... You know, how can we make the best care for our customers the purpose? The avoidance of messy, wasted care costs that produce no healthcare outcomes, how can we be better discerning in that? And out of that shift came margin improvement without benefit reduction. And so, yeah, you wouldn't have got that effort from the the team to find those creative solutions if they were forced and pressured and under the risk of being sacked or something, you know, if they under... It came out of a genuine desire that there was, we wanted to care for our customers, make sure our organisation could step up to the promise we were making. So it drove the human energy and creativity that produced those solutions that benefited not only the customers and the members of the fund, but also the shareholders. Yeah, fantastic. And, and do you have the same team, executive team the whole time, or did you find you had to evolve there, the, the executive team? Yeah, look, 14 years is a long journey. So, yeah, I think I had four chairmen and (laughs) (laughs) about 10 different shareholders in Canberra. So, no, I think we had probably about easily two full cycles of an executive team, maybe two and a half Mm. out of that time, yeah. And many of the team that I put there are still there today, four years after I've left. So, yeah, it's um, and I'm pleased for that because they've, They've invested deeply into it. It is purpose-based and, you know, you're familiar with organisations with deep purpose and it's great to be able to, to have a, a career and, and some vocation in a place where it's more than just a job. You also worked as a board member for World Vision for a long time. I think it was 18 years. What did you learn through that experience? Yeah, it was a very contrasting world I lived in during that period because I, I was on the international board of World Vision as well and I would fly to the projects in very severe situations for human beings and and see where the work was being delivered and administered and some joyful moments with children and clinics and care that you know and seeing mums so you know I I call it the richest woman in the world I found in one of our projects (laughs) she didn't have a bank account but you know to have her children be given a future was priceless for her yeah and there was nothing in the world she wanted more than that she, mm. she was full to the brim. Mm. And so I would live in this contrasting universe of uh, coming back into Australia and dealing with a very first world, one of the best health systems in the world, 
and then going to places where you know there is no health system and there's humanitarian interventions and and people being directly you know extracted from peril so i guess what was common was i was amazed by the staff of world vision and other humanitarian organizations and the commitment and sacrifice they make and again it's more evidence of the fact that care and purpose they're probably part of the same sort of coin one side and the other mm-hmm. when when care and purpose connect the human being is fully flourishing mm-hmm. and you see some of the most amazing experiences in the world and so I, they're things i'll never forget just to see how great people can be in caring for one another was there anything you were able to transfer to the way you led your business oh look i think i would often share some of the stories of my visits in the top 100 briefings at, on a regular basis at Medibank or when I do the rounds with the staff, they knew where, what I did in my other parts of volunteer work. And I always found it was a good connection point mm. with staff that uh, the boss wasn't really just about, <laughs> you know, corporate main street, you know, that he could actually be kind in another way in a different place which maybe made me look a little bit more valid in my attempt to have that kindness play out in a corporate and values and cultural sense in an organisation. I haven't really gone back to do the research on that, Graham, but maybe those <laughs> dots connected a few times that might have been helpful. Yeah, definitely, definitely. What do you do for self-care, George? You've had some you know, big and very stressful roles. You have some big roles now. How do you keep yourself in good shape? Yeah, look, when I was more physical than I am now, I'm 64 now, Graham, so but, you know, but probably up around late 50s. I was still playing hockey and veterans and all of that. I uh, enjoy that. I'm an old hockey player from way back. Very bad at it, but I love being on the field with a bunch <laughs> of guys carrying on like a two-bob watch, um, <laughs> thinking that we're half serious. And so that was that was fun. I get, get out on a little boat. I enjoy getting out on the water. Not a fisherman, but I, I like to move along quickly. Um, Vim and I have been married 40 years, so, you know, I'm married to my best friend and, you know, we spent a lot of time together and, you know, through COVID last year, we did a lot of time together and um, she, that was nourishing for Viv to have me around more often. And we, we thrived on that. It was great. I think in recent years, what keeps me uh, centred and joyful, uh, the things you can't buy, but, you know, they're my little three little grandkids um, the spread of ages are five months to four to five years, five months to five years, and there's three of them. And we spend a lot of time with our two boys and their families, and they're not that far away from us in Melbourne. And yeah, that's very joyful. Uh, I bet. Yeah, I bet. What about when you were in these roles, and the roles you're in now? Do you have good friends you can call on and speak to that can really assist when you're going through some tough times? Yeah, both in the corporate world, there's a few networks there that I plug into. We still meet and catch up from previous relationships in previous corporates. During COVID, you know, we're involved in a community church down here on the peninsula. There's a men's shed there. There's a women's refuge that we're involved in. There's lots of things that we sort of connect with our community. And, and during COVID, when a lot of that stuff sort of froze up a bit, especially in Melbourne when it was a long lockdown, 100 days, we started Zooming some groups you know, I'm in a book club. It's still going. It was happening this morning at 8 o'clock. <laughs> we're, we're reading the book Cast. It's a great book, an incredible book about racism. And another group was basically the Friday night glass of wine group, which uh, a bunch of buddies have got a few hobbies and we share that over video. And, and that sort of, I didn't, in COVID lockdown, we all, I really look forward to those mm. weekly catch-ups. Yeah. It's funny now that we got back to a busier pace that, oh, yeah, it's on this Friday. I'll have to make sure I can do it. And, you know. So I kind of get the feeling that uh, there will be a deficit coming out of the lockdown period mm. of COVID, which, you know, we all have to go through, which will be that we valued time and people more when we had time. Yeah. I know you've always been a very diligent reader. What have been books that have had the biggest impact? Oh, look, the Arbinger Institute's book, Leadership and Self-Deception, that's a pretty powerful book. You know, the vortex of self-interest that captures uh, any individual that ends up accumulating authority in, in roles and positions. Yeah. 
So that's a really powerful book, really healthy read for emerging leaders who need to make sure that they don't get in the way of serving the mission. What does it encourage readers to do? What's, what's the core message of it? It's a sort of an expose. It's like the emperor with no clothes. <laughs> you right. get to see yourself. So, oh, yes. So <laughs> even in the, opening, in the opening pages, there's this little example where people are coming onto the aircraft and they're rushing down the corridor to get their bag up first and get a bit of space and they sit down. And, and in, the seat, in the seats of three, you know, there's, there's this wish that the middle seat's not going to get taken up. <laughs> You've already taken over the middle seat with your elbows hanging over. <laughs> And then just before the door shuts, oh, no. <laughs> so it's a very small example of self-interest, but, you know, that's a human being that needs to fly to the same destination. And I was wishing they didn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, the, so that's how the book starts. It gets a bit deeper than that. <laughs> but it does call us out for, you know, Simone Wilk in her the French philosopher, a lovely female philosopher in the Second World War, talks about the two forces of the universe, gravity and grace. You know, gravity, the vortex of self-interest. Grace, the power to reach out to another human being and care for them. Mm. And those two forces are at play in the universe. And so I've read books around that. I've enjoyed Jonathan Sachs' book, Morality, just sadly passed away, beautiful man. And, you know, The Second Mountain, uh, there's been a few good reads this year during COVID that I've enjoyed. It's been encouraging. And also some of our Indigenous heritage, uh, One Blood and some more recent books about the early years in, in, the, in the settlement of Australia and some of the stories that haven't been told. So in my role at SBS, we're, we're very keen to get some of those narratives expressed and told so that you, know, you can't reconcile unless you start with truth-telling. And so we, we have a job to do in that area. So I've been reading up a fair bit in that area as well. You're the son of immigrants and they were quite recently in Australia before you were born. How did that um, shape the way that you experienced teenage years and I guess uh, getting to university as well? Yeah, so two lovely parents, Helen and Andrew. Dad passed away about five years ago. Helen, I saw mum last week. She's 95, still doing well in Sydney. Yeah, so very generous people committed to their family, their kids, so they invest everything for them. So you grow up knowing that you were truly loved, but also that, you know, nothing comes without hard work and effort. So they were the role models we had. Dad worked on the submarine base at Balmoral in in Sydney and was the electrician there. And in the early years, I used to spend some time down there on the base. That was a lot of fun. Dad was always a very generous man. Uh, We'd have people around, hospitality, you know, the Greek food. And not just Greek people, you know, the neighbours, friends, uh, people that he worked with. So there was always this sort of lovely attraction to our home. So I, I, I was inspired by his generosity and hospitality as a human trait, which he did very well. He did a lot of work for friends that never charged for it, you know, putting in PowerPoints and light fittings <laughs> as an electrician. I used to hand up some of those tools on the weekend and help him as his apprentice. Yeah, so he uh, very excited to see me do well at school and my sister and went off to New South Wales, studied engineering. I loved engineering, studied the Japanese manufacturing technology of total quality management and my specialty year and then when did an MBA at UTS. So, you know, dad was was my best fan. If anything was ever written about me or something was happening and he would cut it out, ring me up, he, you know, he's just constantly proud of his son and, and his daughter and just um, the beautiful people. So, yeah, so I, so I grew up to the title of this interview. <laughs> I was just totally surrounded with care in terms of love and care as a family. So, and that inspired me. You know, the school of hard knocks at school, being a, a wog boy from, you know, Greek heritage, there was a bit of that. But I think in my journey, it probably just produced some character rather than damage. So, you know, we ended up being friends with all of the gang. So we, we motored through that. But it's still an important issue to be sensitive to as we try to be an inclusive society. And, in Australia, and that's why I'm passionate about what I'm doing at SBS. And, you know, we don't want to follow the, the role models of other places in the world where we've seen deep division in community. Yeah, fantastic. Who else did you learn from going through your career? Did you have, you know, mentors that made a big difference to you? Yeah, look, I had a couple of bosses who were beautiful leaders of, you know, organisations who practised many of the things that I then adopted as pathways and yeah, they were lovely. Uh, they took me under their wing. They did a bit of coaching and mentoring for me in my early years as an engineer and then later as a business manager. 
probably about four of them. So I was very fortunate. Maybe I sought them out. I don't know. But there was always this desire to learn and to understand how leaders did things and how they did things and why they did them. And, and then when I started to get into it myself in terms of reading and getting into the authors that researched the, the high performance and where it came from and the human factors behind that, that sort of got me into my own sort of treadmill of discovery. And, and then once you get a chance as a CEO to put it into practice and see what works and doesn't work, you sort of get very convicted internally about, mm-hmm. yeah, I know this is the way to do it. We had authors of many books come to speak to us, a guy called Fred Lee who wrote the book, If Disney Ran Your Hospital, What Nine and a Half Things Would You Do Different? <laughs> you might have met Fred in your times, uh, Graham, but he's a big, big on care. He believes that a care culture uh, absolutely adds to curing and healing, uh, not mm. just the physical intervention of um, the medical system. And he spent some time at Disney at Central Carson learning the attributes of care and inclusion and took that back into the healthcare cycle of his hospitals and ended up with high-performing hospitals. And he says it's all got to do with nurses who sit down and hold the hand of a patient and really listen and support and care. So I, I, we translated that into the corporate scene. We, we had an astronaut who came and visited us, Charlie Duke. He told us the stories of how to solve unsolvable problems. You know, the oxygen cylinders running out in Apollo 13. How do you get home? <laughs> and, you know, in corporations, we're often fine in front of wicked, wicked problems. But I'm a deep believer in the chemistry of creativity in human beings. And if you can get the right kind of culture and passion around solving a problem that the world needs to be solved, impossible as it looks and seems, solutions will be found. And it's that interface. And how do you create an environment as a leader? that permits people to have a go like that and be fearless but trusting of each other so they can, you know, fail quickly until they find the solution. I've been encouraged by lots of thought leaders who have come across our way and shared that with the organisations that I led at the same time and they went on a learning journey as well. How do you make it safe for people bring up concerns, that the people bring up bad news in an organisation? Yes, that's right. It's a, a, you know, it's, it's certainly... A, an important area. The last thing a board or a CEO wants is to find things way past uh, the due time of it being disclosed. Sometimes the problem is that the CEO is so fearsome that employees are frightened to elevate and be transparent. So it sort of does go back to culture and what do you stand for? And if the area of honesty, integrity and trust isn't there, then bad news won't be shared. It'll be buried. So a healthy organisation needs uh, leadership capable of being open and receptive to things that go wrong and respect that in human practice, not everything's going to work and punishing a failure is not going to be a pathway to a future high-performing organisation. It's learning from it. And it might mean also picking up the individual who stumbles and making sure they can continue on the journey with us rather than seeing them as a casualty and... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is a nuance, isn't it? And and it's very easy to default. Very easy from the top down to send fear. Yeah, yeah. And the senior leaders have to be extremely careful about their frustrations, their times of anger and wanting to, you know, find another place to land the blame because the board's putting it in their lap. Mm. Yeah, and that's the red sock, isn't it? Once you stain it. Yeah. People will be fearful of telling the truth. You've lost trust and that organisation cannot perform at a high level, nor can it deliver promises to its customers if it's caught up in that negative spiral. Very much so. When you think of your career, what, what's a achievement you feel really proud of? It's 100% your choice. It could be in any, any area of leadership, but something that was very meaningful to you. Look, uh, yeah, I know you won't be surprised to say there were many, but I, I guess the one that surprised me the most, because there was a lot at stake commercially, it was significant, was the pivot from a health insurer that pays bills to transition into a healthcare company. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot at stake, right? Mm. You know, if you goof that up and it actually is worse, you know, you don't have the competency to become a healthcare company, you'll never get deep enough to actually discern 
what services providers should be contracted to provide for the health fund members and what pathways, you know, if you screw that up. Yeah, there'll be red ink everywhere. You would have invested in things that were more expensive but delivered less and you'd be the laughing stock. Lots of downside. So the way we did that transition or transformation was not top-down. It was bottom-up. So it was the hunger and desire of the body of the organisation to become more relevant to its customers. Mm. And they actually saw that there were opportunities for this. It's just that the top-down didn't deliver it for them. More insights into the care providers, more detail about the surgeries and consequences and other options. And so in making those acquisitions and then working at it, good integration rather than clunky dysfunction, getting that integration so we had a a much more informed organisation around healthcare. We got the transition through, the relevance through, the products change, the experience change, but so too did the bottom line. Mm -hmm. We became much more discerning about where the $5 billion of claims would be spent and we discovered where the $300 and $400 million of wasted purchases were, which went to the bottom line so shareholders became happy. And so that was a big bet, Graham. Very big. And did you feel, how long did it take before you felt confident that this is actually happening? It was around year four, year five, so mm. of, of the transition. So of, mm. after three years of turnaround, 2005, we then did the transformation program around 2005 to 2010. And yeah, in the middle of that, you could see the pivot and then the rest of it has just been improvement. So it also says that it's tough to do transformations if a company needs it. If you've got short-term CEO cycles, mm-hmm. because, yeah. you know, the, the, the next guy may not see it or girl may not see it and they, there's a different need and the context is pressured. And so these are rare things and I was very, very fortunate to have a bit of a run to actually see it through and then after leaving, see the legacy that continue to be fruitful. What were some of the obstacles on that journey? Mm. Yeah, so that's a good question. So resistance to change. Hiring healthcare workforces in the acquisitions that came into the business, that they were given empowerment and those who had the, the role of making those calls in the past didn't want to give it up. There was a bit of resistance mm-hmm. there. Some of the mindsets from the acquired businesses weren't good fits with the culture and mindset of the inherited business. So we had to do a lot of work on respect for each other. It didn't matter where you came from. We are on the same mission. And we're not going to be high performers unless we treat each other as team players with respect and a lot of work on that. So there was a one company rather than a series of discontinuities across acquisitions. So that that was challenging to stitching together an integrated outcome after a series of acquisitions. Are most people capable of change? I think if you touch the cord called conviction or purpose or meaning or relevance, they're all sort of coming off the same theme. If an individual can be connected to one of those attributes, then if we have to lift to be successful for a customer or for whatever, another stakeholder, then there's a why. Mm. So I just, you know, human beings will lift if there's a why, whether Mm. there's a fire at the edge of a community town and we all get out there and defend the town or whether there's a healthcare workforce that's under an incredible challenge at the moment, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. But there's plenty of why. People do amazing things when you can connect to the why, along with the humanitarian work, as I talked about earlier. So, But in mainstream Australia, the why can be just, you know, the person that comes in on the contact centre call. They might have a a service with your company or a policy or, you know, whatever. And you work for a company that says it's not just what you sold them that's important. It's how you care for the individual that's calling us. Uh, because, Because it's not today's product that we are selling. It's the trust that makes it a relationship that goes on a long-term and sustainable journey. So being able to help people see that, you know, they're not just dealing with traffic noise in a contact centre, they're actually dealing with the future life flow of the organisation and, and it's about human beings and the consideration that they give to maybe an, anx- an anxious caller that doesn't understand the paperwork and they just need a bit of assistance or, mm-hmm. or they can't afford this particular product and they need to be given another option if that's possible. So that kind of consideration, empathy, yeah, if you can connect the why, you'll get high performance. Wonderful. 
On the introvert-extrovert scale, where, where do you consider yourself to be? Yeah, so I would have defaulted to, ex, uh, to introvert, but I, if I'm in front of a, a team and I have to say, this is where we're going, this is a why, and I really need your help, and then I, I draw energy from that process. Mm. So that means there's an extroversion that, that I feed on when I'm getting on with what, what I call my mission, but then there's also a place where I just want to, yeah, sit down in my cave and go walk on the beach. <laughs> it's interesting. Last week I interviewed a lady called Amanda Yates and she's the Deputy Director General of the Department of Main Roads and Transport in Queensland. And she said exactly the same, that she was an introvert, but she's learned how to be an extrovert when, when she needs to be. But she also knows, and it sounds like you know this as well, that you do need time to regenerate by yourself, however that happens. How did you manage to do that in the work environment, you know, when you had to, you know, be the, the chief coach for a period of time and then you had to sort of regenerate? How did, you, how did you manage your energy in that environment? I think I was lucky that my leadership style was more coach. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to have all the answers. I didn't have to be the best kicker on the field. Or, you know, or if it's the orchestra, I was the conductor, not the best player of every instrument. And so that is, you know, by definition, a heavy delegation, mm-hmm. a dispersion of authority and responsibility. Yeah. It goes with trust mm-hmm. that the best way to get a great outcome is to get great people to be part of the delivery of that great outcome rather than it's all about you, George. So I was lucky that being a very significant delegator of responsibilities and basically touching in and checking and monitoring a bit like the conductor, I had time. Yeah. You know, I, I had weekends. I could be with family, probably not as often as Viv would have liked, but I, I had that time. I had my, my family was my energy source and my centering. We continued in our journey with our sort of faith journey with our church and, you know, that spirituality piece is important for Viv and I. We, it sort of gets us into a place where, you know, it's about how do we serve the world and others and, and that gets us centred in the right direction rather than about self-interest. Mm. Yeah, so I was fortunate, I think, that my, if, I, if my leadership style was, and I've seen it in others, having to be in every pie and everything that's made and every meeting because there's a fear that maybe they, they won't lift as high if I'm not there pushing, pushing, directing. Mm. I would have been exhausted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have survived. The, the long-term journey, I would have to check out at some point and start all over again. Yeah. One of the really favourite events of my corporate life was going on a, a cattle drove where you invited me to be part of that, to be part of the leadership team, and we went to, I think it was Emerald, and sort of lived like cowboys for that period of time. And it really has become, very, you know, as you know now, I, I speak a lot and do workshops, but I use that cattle drove and the movie city slickers to really consider, you know, what is people's one thing? And it really, you know, I've I've done this exercise in hundreds of places around Australia and around the world that never ceases to amaze me what people nominate as their one thing. You know, it could be as, I remember I had a a CEO of an agriculture company saying that doing chainsaw carving was his one thing. You know, I've had a woman who worked in a bank in North Sydney say that uh, going fishing in a little Tinny by herself, 10Ks out to sea was her one thing. So it, it, it was quite an extraordinary event for me. Do you ever reflect on that time that we had there? Yeah, I do. It's, uh, it was lovely. I took my leadership group with me and you were part of that. And it was a way for my leadership group to work out how to be teaming without the context of the everyday work mm. out there on the, on the big open plains. And we did a couple of droves. And, yeah, the team bonded much more effectively after that because mm. there are some things in the architecture of day-to-day business and work, corporate environments, where they get in, in the way often of connecting more deeply with individuals. So when you see them out there, we're pretty well we're all equal status. Everyone's got a horse <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's plodding along at the speed of, a, of the cattle in front of us as we you know, prod them along, take them to market. And, you know, we had a purpose, the, the cattle were sold and they, were get, they went to a mental health charitable group in the rural communities that we were part of. So, yeah, it was very special. The night sky was the kill for, you know, mm-hmm. the amazing show that goes on up above our heads at night time when you don't have the city lights fogging it away. So there was one moment of truth for me, Graham. We were going down a gully and I was following cattle and, and my 
horse was going at the wrong angle and and I was starting to lean and I would have kept rolling to the, into that gully. <laughs> and somebody must have told Lyle, who's a, a horseman, and he's a saddle maker, keep an eye on George, don't let him kill himself. And so <laughs> he was just there with his horse as my horse stumbled and I started to fall. And I fell into his shoulder. <laughs> his horse held the horse that was falling and we uprighted ourselves. And then he disappeared again. <laughs> it's certainly a place for humility, isn't it? Because these people have been riding horses their whole life and you feel very inadequate <laughs> by that. But one thing I you know, really encourage people to do is to, when I share the exercise and nominating their one thing, is to share it with others. And it's extraordinary how many people don't know those things about each other. And when they talk about it, you just see the energy in the room lift. You know, you see sparks in the eye, you see people smiling. And it just just goes to show if people can tap into those things that are really central to them, really core to what makes them a person, it's good for everyone. It really is. Yeah, no, that's great. Those little moments of truth are important. Very much so. George, if you were giving advice to your 20-year-old self, you know, when if you go back and do that and advice to save you time and a bit of heartache on the leadership journey, what, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Yeah, that's a great question. Probably not to worry as much. There were times where I was caught up in the, you know, obviously the, the weight of the responsibilities were quite significant, navigating board meetings and shareholder meetings and operating the organisation, there was always something that would worry you. And also the, the stress of would I measure up mm. to the challenge ahead, you know, the mm. next meeting, the next issue, the next challenge. And I think I probably hurt myself a bit more than I needed to in the worry. Mm. It made me probably less connected at home when I was home because I was, that was still in the back of my head. Mm. So I probably didn't hear the boys as clearly as I would have as a dad if I parked that in a more sensible place in the priority list. Because mm. the point I'm making is that if I worried at 50 and not at 100, nothing would have changed. <laughs> the journey would have been the journey, except yeah. I might have heard things in a more empathetic way around my, my family life and yeah. relationships because worry tends to affect your ears. Mm. It gets away in the way of hearing others and being in tune with others. So, yeah, that would be the advice of a 20-year-old George, you know. Don't let the stress go beyond a healthy space where it's going to deny you the thriving that you get from those things around you that are important to you. And how do you manage that worry, that stress? What sort of strategies do you have for that now? Well, I think I do park it in the it's not the end of the world box. That whatever I'm fearful about, whether it's failing to measure up to a particular challenge I've been given, whether it's a, a presentation I've got to make, an AGM that's coming up, a, a problem to deal with in a work setting that I don't know the answer to, you know, worry is not the way to get to the solution. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly it's important and healthy to be concerned mm. and to be concerned sufficiently to do the preparation, to put the effort in but then it becomes unproductive if I'm sitting there baking in the, in the churn of will it fail, what would happen if it failed, won't it be adequate, will people laugh at me, what, you know, that, whatever it is that you're concerned about. Yeah. So putting it in, the, giving it the right level of respect. Fantastic. The CSIRO nominated rising work stress and mental health issues as a mega risk for the next 20 years. How do boards stay on top of that? How do they know how things are tracking inside an organisation? Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm on a few boards and they all do their deep dives around culture surveys and organisational heartbeat. They've all got names for it. Whether the tool is sufficiently sophisticated or not to really home in, I, I guess, is still a question. But I certainly have seen more of a push into, especially last year with the COVID Mm. Uh, genuine concern about staff, how they're traveling through it, worried about the infection protection side as well, the physical side, but also the mental health sides around 
fearing that maybe their career's in jeopardy or their company won't make it or working from home will put them out of the line of sight of future aspirations they might have in terms of career. And then the jumbling of family and life around you while you're trying to get your job done at home, all of that sort of. Mm-hmm. So the several of the companies I've been that they've tuned into trying to understand that, get feedback from work for, from from staff. They've modified some of the hours of meetings so they're not into end and people are sort of locked up. They get some exercise, they go for walks. And you know, even down to, you know, suicidal tendencies, you know, they, those questions are asked in delicate ways to see whether people are struggling mm. so that there can be a bit of a deeper dive around we're here to help how can we plug into you you know you can always talk to us as well as the other things that happen at home in terms of domestic violence and other pressure points that occur as well so there, there seems to be a desire to for employers to be more in tune yeah with workforces i think the the tool set that they use is still exploratory yeah, and probably not perfect, but there seems to be some more than baby steps towards a deeper understanding. George, mm. it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. It's been great to revisit your career and you know the, the areas you have worked in, what you've achieved, and I really love that you also have a broad leadership role, not just in business, but also very much with World Vision and also Arrow Training, looking for emerging leaders. And, you know, to me, you really champion both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you, Graham. It's been great to catch up. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you are interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.